LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Dean Puckett, who joins us to discuss his forthcoming film, Grasp the Nettle. Grasp the Nettle is a documentary adventure film which follows the exploits of a ragtag band of land rights activists in London as they struggle against corporations, government, police and themselves in their efforts to create alternative communities outside the framework of consumer society. When an eco-village pops up on a piece of disused land in West London, filmmaker Dean gives up everything, his flat, his job and his normal life to live among its eclectic inhabitants in an effort to understand what makes them tick. Before he knows it, he's pulled into an epic, inspiring and at times harrowing journey of discovery as he follows the villagers from the suburbs to the heart of London outside the Palace of Westminster where they occupy Parliament Square. Their ranks swelled by the homeless, the visionaries and eccentrics of the newfound democracy village clash with authority and each other as they grapple with how to balance their ideals of freedom with the increasing chaos around them. Shot over three years in the aftermath of the 2008 banking collapse, Grasp the Nettle is an intimate exploration of the rise and fall of two radical social experiments, pioneered by the loved and the lost of a city reeling from the impact of economic and ecological crisis. In the process, it asks hard questions about the nature of freedom and the meaning of activism in these interesting times. Hello and welcome, Dean, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hello, thanks for having me. Dean, today we're going to talk about your latest film project, which is called Grasp the Nettle. And this basically documents your experience with land activists at um, Kew Bridge Eco Village in West London. So perhaps you could just set out first the background and overview of how all this came together. On the 6th of June 2009, I was invited by a group of friends uh kind of activists who had been involved in anti-war movement um land rights stuff like that uh people that i'd met through really kind of living on the being on the periphery of of activism of the activism scene in london whatever that is i mean there's loads of different people doing loads of different things but one's particular group anyway and i went along and i I filmed the first day i was kind of just enchanted by this amazing little experiment really which was which was starting up and taking place on a, on one three acre piece of land in west london which was earmarked for development and i i just got fascinated by it and the first three or four weeks i i, I was going back at weekends because i was still working at, uh, doing a freelance camera job at the time after that that camera job finished i decided i was going to take a bit of a leap of faith and move into the eco village I mean, I did identify generally with the politics of the space, and I and I still do. 
but there was a fascinating tension between the idealism of actually doing this and the reality of trying to have a free space in an urban environment. That is what ultimately did attract me as a filmmaker uh, was was that tension and, and, and exploring that. And I think that's what the film does, and I hope it does. And I kind of emerged about a year and a half later with a box of 200 hours of footage. And, uh, you know, the, the, the film charts this amazing adventure that, that I took whilst making the film. Uh, and I actually, in between, before I edited the film, I went and made a film called The Crisis of Civilization, based on a book by Nafiz Ahmed, another guy that you've had on here. Uh, and then I've come back and now uh, I finished the editing of this, of Grasp the Nettle, in December. Now, the decision for, uh, for you to actually move in there was obviously quite momentous, but it does seem to have made all the difference because we've seen much footage and even documentaries uh, about certain communities or uh, movements, particularly activist movements uh, in the political and social and economic spheres. And there's that tension with the, the quote-unquote outsiders that never really seems to fully dissipate. So I just, what difference do you think that made ultimately? Well, I think it's funny because the experience I'm having currently of actually trying to get the film into mainstream film festivals or get distributed uh, is is kind of pointing towards the fact that maybe people aren't actually ready for this kind of film that I've made or the approach that I've made. Or, or, or people are ready, but maybe people in these institutions. So I did get very much under the skin of it all. And I did get into something a lot more real, ultimately, than I believe you've seen in many quote-unquote activist films. And I don't think it really is an activist film, in a sense, because of that, actually. And I'm not sitting here slagging off other films which are maybe about activism or social change movements or any of that. But I think that by moving in and becoming a part of it, and actually becoming friends with everybody, I did get into, yeah, get get past the the way, that the thing that was being projected outwards, which is this is this cause, or this is our ideals, or this is, you know, the, the reason we have done this. And I got beyond that into this is what it's actually like. I think that maybe for the mainstream or for mainstream distribution or current models that exist, the fact that I moved into the village actually cuts it off from, from them, i.e. that makes the film biased in some way. Whereas the reality, I think, that when you watch the film, I'm incredibly honest about the struggles that we did have. You know, I, don't, I, I didn't feel like I had any, any uh, you know, I, I didn't feel pressured or... I didn't feel there's any... I didn't feel it was really worth trying to sugarcoat uh, what happened there or what happened in those things because I think people are intelligent to realise there was some beauty there there was some amazing stuff that happened there was some crazy stuff that happened you know and and I think through each of the characters you get a different element of what it was actually like to live in such a amazing vibrant you know communities or both of them Kubridge Eco Village and the Democracy Village on Parliament Square what's interesting as I said with trying to get the film out is that it seems like, you know, I've shown it in two private screenings so far, full of family members, activists, you know, friends, family, people that haven't, don't know the characters in the film, people that do. An overwhelming response 
especially from people that have been involved in activism, is that is such a refreshing film. It's so refreshing to watch a film which shows people what it's actually like when we try and hold a space. You know, and this film predates Occupy by about a year and a half, but the themes and, and the challenges that the people in my film face are very similar to the ones that the people in Occupy movement in this country, but I, I guess around the world as well, have experienced, um, you know, drug addiction, people, broken, broken souls that uh, inhabit these cities that end up gravitating towards these spaces. Um, and so it's a fasc- it's a very interesting uh, space I've found myself in with this film. Um, and, and I'm just working very hard at the moment to try and find a home for it and, and an audience, ultimately. One thing it does demonstrate clearly is... Uh, the difference between, you know, just sort of talking the talk and walking the walk when it comes to activism, because a lot of activist movements, uh, particularly in, you know, industrialized Western civilizations over the over my lifetime, certainly have ended up being criticized for being a bit sort of middle class liberal. Uh, you know, you can stick on a CND badge or whatever and then go back to your your semi detached in Surrey. But that. This shows when you're actually living something like this, you know, just becoming change, so to speak, that it's not always easy that, you know, as you say, there's a mixture of characters there. But even if you're completely committed to this, to do it 24-7 with all the sacrifices and demands involved, um, it is not a simple thing to just say, I'm for this, and then, you know, go back to your sort of comfortable residence. Exactly, yeah. I think that's that's definitely what the film shows and what the experience showed me as a person is there is a difference. And I I have to say, I do feel like many of the films and the media which are coming out and it's, and it's inherently in the nature of what people are trying to do because they're trying to push something and they're trying to push against this huge, which is ultimately neoliberal free market capitalist, not just to the system of it, but the culture of it and the media of it. And they're trying to push back against that in their own small ways. And so obviously they're going to, for the most part, try and make it look like it's almost sugarcoating it, but that's not the quite the right word, but it's like trying to say that it doesn't, it's, it, it, it's a good way to go and you should agree with us. And although I do to some extent agree with them I, I don't and I do but I don't sort of think that actually maybe people see that reverse pop- propaganda in a way and, and then they question it even more or like as you say when people sort of just say I agree with a certain issue but I'm not really willing to get to the heart of it or the root of it and ultimately I think that what our film demonstrates is that land rights and some sort of freedom which cuts underneath all of the rhetoric, which is like, let's live freely on a piece of sp- of of land. You know, and you ultimately see both of those places get destroyed. It really gets to the heart of it. And it isn't pretty. You know, it is pretty at times. And I think the film looks beautiful, but it, it, it's chaotic as well. And actually, most people I know that have lived in squats, land occupations, you know, guerrilla gardens, occupied land, we're near any cities has had a very chaotic experience, and I've met many of them. One thing the film also does very much is, um, as you touched upon there, is highlighting the the lack of sustainability within our modern societies. And uh, there's messages in there that, that people really aren't ready for. It's, you know, it's, it's going to make a lot of people feel really quite uncomfortable, I think. There's so many layers to this as well, because, first of all, something like Cuba Eco Village and Democracy Village 
uh, do make the wider society on some level feel uncomfortable but because it is very different and it is to some extent stepping outside of the mainstream uh, consumer society and i and i think you're right but it's also intrinsically linked to it as well because all of the things that were built were built out of rubbish that comes from the cities um but that in itself is an, a great political act because it's you know using things which people are throwing away in, in our very wasteful uh, societies uh, but it's also kind of um interesting because we, we've become so used to one way of doing things i.e we have unequal land ownership we have planning law we have free market economics where we go to work we get our mortgage we have our small little plot we work our whole lives to have it and to keep it and to live on it and then we die or we retire for a little while you know and then we or we remortgage our house and go on another box floating around the sea you know and it's all just a very kind of formulaic and and it's all very narrow and i know people have lovely lives and i'm not being cynical about that and i'm not saying it's all doom and gloom but it just seems very strange to me that people feel so threatened when when people want to do something just a little bit different. You know, I think ultimately most of these issues come back to land rights and access to land and resources and how we can work out a way that people can live in a different way and can access this stuff, not not just for themselves, but ultimately for, for everybody in the wider society as well, because... There are people in the wider society, by and large, aren't aren't happy. Particularly, you know, we have rates of depression rising. We have, you know, pe- this this culture actually overall isn't making us happy. Yet, when people try to do something different, whether you agree with it or not, people feel very threatened by it. And I and I find that quite interesting. And especially when you have a place like Kew Bridge, where the ethos is very open, you know, it's basically an open door policy. And and it is real anarchy in action, ultimately, you know, struggling or, or, or there's a struggle there. There's a tension there. There's a friction there where it's trying to, you know, there isn't a hierarchy where somebody's telling other people what to do. It's it's this naturally evolving thing. And, and actually, I think if we had the freedom and the space and access to disused land, I'm not trying to take away anybody's land, land that's not being used. You know, if we had access to it, then we could create something really beautiful. But we don't know what it's going to look like. And the process of doing it might not be clean and crisp and clear cut. And I think that's what you're seeing with Q is like maybe like the birth of something new. And if it was allowed to flourish, you could see something amazing happen. But obviously all of these places ultimately get cut short through oppression, uh, you know, through big business or the state oppressing the people and, and removing them from land. And ultimately, you know, we need to start challenging that. We have a mainstream green movement that We'll talk about growing food and climate change and peak oil. But when you start talking about squatting land, it becomes a bit of a, you know, it's a touchy subject. Maybe that's not quite the way to go because it's not very PR friendly. And I just have to question, you know, do you really believe in peak oil and climate change? Do you really believe in the negative impacts of globalization? Because if you really truly believe in all of that stuff, then I think we need radical action. You know, as Simon at the end of my film says, let's occupy 
bits of MOD land. You know, that's the kind of movement I'd like to be a part of and start to move forward with. And, and things are happening. But, you know, the, the Ministry of Defence owns about half a million acres of this country. I, I think it, it, it hits at the heart of something which, for me, is kind of like the baseline of where all of these movements need to spring from. It's just my personal opinion. But then within that as well, I'm a filmmaker and I'm an artist and I love to just get into characters and, and, and listen to their stories. And I'm fascinated by people. And and I think you get a lot of that that kind of side of things as well. So it's... You know, I think the film shows the political side and the that friction, as you said, between the outside and the in, internal world of the village. But also you see, I think that for people that are maybe threatened by spaces like this, they can watch this film and see people breaking up with people. And, you know, the solid centre of the film, which is the core group of people that are trying to hold it all together. I think that people that live on the outside world can really identify with them. And hopefully the film will actually work to undermine this um, image of the activist as a separate entity and undermine this separateness of the outside world with those internal spaces. And hopefully through identification with the some of the main characters in the film will actually dissolve a lot of that stuff. I mean, like my, my uncle is a good example. I showed the, the film to my uncle at the friends and family and he is like a daily mail reading guy you know he's i'd say he would be predisposed to be against quite a lot of what was going on in the film and he loved it and he really identified with a lot of the people in it and i think it really blew him away because he wasn't expecting to see that kind of a film so i think it could be it could if it was able to get to a big enough audience i think it could actually really help to undermine a lot of that separation uh, so the big challenge for me is to make that happen, which, which is a, a very big challenge indeed. Well, you mentioned the Daily Mail there, just for overseas listeners. That's a really quite ultra-conservative mainline, so to speak, uh, British newspaper that's well known for its uh, attention-grabbing headlines, shall we say. But people like your uncle, um, you know, sort of white middle-class conservatives, whatever you know bracket we want to put them in, there's this ideas you just mentioned a moment ago of what an activist is and it's always someone who's wearing hemp and eating mung beans and has lots of piercings and just wants to tear down the fabric of society and of course it's activism takes many forms and it's all it's it's just like a slice of the human race it involves all ages all backgrounds and anybody who's ever cared about anything may have taken some action to promote it or prevent something and they were engaging in activism then absolutely yes I think that this film shows that, it, especially as you see certain characters enter the film and the eco-village, and, you know, they turn up in the film and say, hey, you know, I was homeless and I was invited here to come and stay because I was living in a tent by the river and I was miserable. Uh, and then throughout the 90-minute film, by the end of it, they're they're involved in direct action. <laughs> and you see that very direct line where you see a homeless guy, ultimately, or what we would label as a homeless guy, by the end of the film, is engaging in direct action on Parliament Square. And for me, that character, in a way, Yayan, in the film, sums up what the film ultimately is about, which is that, you know, that line that we need to kind of somehow work to get rid of this this invisible line between us and them, you know, activists and normal people, because we're all, we should all be engaged in, you know, in how our societies 
or moving forward or moving things into a into a better place for all of us and it's good i mean we're at, we, we can see now with what's happening with the nhs what's happening with this current government what's happening with global crises around the world we're at a crossroads i think and lots of people feel like we're at a crossroads and um you know my documentary is about what happens when you really take action and try to do something about it um i think that we see in certain disaster situations uh, like for example hurricane katrina i mentioned that simply because it was so uh, so public so televised that the civilization that we all share can actually be quite a thin veneer however the situation is that contrary to popular belief uh, there wasn't a lot of looting uh, most people in new orleans didn't loot uh, some it depends what you say what a looter is some people just took some stuff that was floating by that they needed to survive Shooting, raping, all of the stuff that we were told was happening wholesale generally wasn't, despite all the enormous problems and what we see in crisis situations that people tend to come together. Now, I think mm -hmm. the mentioning this thin veneer of civilization, I think some people in the Daily Mail bracket and probably most people in society, to be honest, would look at something like the eco village and smell anarchy because that's basically what it is. And their idea, and this is their fear of anarchy, is this lack of security that if someone comes into your hut to take your stuff that no one's going to help you but generally speaking you know whatever the closest that societies have come to pure anarchy they have not operated on that basis because it's always in our interests disaster situation or not to actually cooperate yeah absolutely well this is well this is exactly comes back to media representation ultimately or misconceptions because I, I my personal view of what anarchy is is self-organized non-hierarchical um society of 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 any only of any nature you know and many people have different views of what anarchy is and can be but that's my view on it uh chaos is this sort of negative word this negative connotation to it. if we have anarchy we'll have chaos well you know i think we've already got chaos and actually that we're looking at the extinction or the destruction of not the planet, but of our way of life or of, you know, there are already people that live in a very bad situation on this planet uh, due to the une un unequal and exploitative nature of the economic system and of our cultural, you know, neoliberal capitalist system. And it needs to change. And so, you know, it's just very strange to live in this sort of ordered chaos, which is the globalized world, and then look down on people that try to create a little bit of anarchy on a three-acre piece of land in West London. I don't know. We, we kind of, it's just, it feels like we look at the world for a very narrow lens, many people. And as you said, many people are very threatened by things they don't understand. And they don't understand, I don't think, the true concepts of what anarchism can or could be. And therefore, they're scared. Yeah, I think, I mean, people's aversion to the other is so strong that I've seen people almost have their entire, you know, faith in humanity undermined by a piece of street art, you know, someone doing performance <laughs> arts. Basically, if you crop up anywhere amongst people and start behaving in, in a non-conventional way, it really does disconcert some people terribly. And I think this, what you're seeing at the Ecoville is just that sort of thing writ large. You know, it's this cast of colourful characters, some not so colourful actually, might have been quite a few boring people there as well, but it's the, just the idea of the uh, of the other I think really, and that harks back to some quite probably quite deep-seated psychological 
um, archetypes and a sort of collective subconscious, you know, I think in, in human beings generally. I don't know. I'm trying to understand this at the moment. Yeah, I'm not some authority on how people perceive, you know, others. And and maybe what we're saying, maybe in a way it's like a sweeping statement that actually maybe most people are quite comfortable with interacting with unusual people. And actually sometimes I do think that perhaps we as people that are maybe, you know, you're doing a podcast a progressive with progressive ideas and I'm making documentaries about, you know, these extraordinary things and like like the eco village maybe we're forgetting that perhaps we're buying into the media representation ourselves so in a sense actually i do believe that most people that would sit down in front of grass the nettle would engage with it would identify with the characters would understand the motivations perhaps not possibly agree with them but understand them and actually the what we're actually up against is not how people feel when they're actually uh you know put in front of these things uh it's actually the the media representation and the control mechanisms which mean that i can't get this film shown on mainstream bbc you know i can't get this film into a main a, a big film festival and get it reviewed in in the guardian and things oh well, i may be able to do that i don't know but you know it, it's kind of I just wonder, actually, if it's more about the fact... It's not the fact that people don't want to see stuff like this. It's just that they're not given the opportunity. And I think that, actually, my experience is uh, that when most people do come face-to-face with it, they are able to to get into it and understand it. Like, people that actually visited Q, it was amazing. People would come in, they'd, they'd be very wary at first, and then after a while, they'd really get into the atmosphere of it and, 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 and the ideas behind it and they'd enjoy it. And so really it's, I think that people are, people are really adaptable and really open. Most, most people. And actually I think that the problem is, is, is ultimately is the media and the control mechanisms within that for a film, from a film perspective anyway, you know, I think the media is the big issue and the, and the structures that are in place, which mean how you get your film funded, how you get it out there, and how you get it seen, is that those that, that you can't. It's very difficult to get a film like this into even the edges of the mainstream, because I, I think that people make assumptions about what people want and what people are scared of and what people are uncomfortable with, you know, and those people are, are commissioners, are heads of film festivals are heads of distribution companies. You know, those people are making assumptions about what people are or aren't scared of, which ultimately I believe are wrong. Regarding the mainstream media, I think that they are dying on their feet. It's still an enormously powerful force. You know, the mainline television and to a lesser extent newspapers. Um, But there is a great thirst for alternative ideas and new information. And I think you're right. When you do get it put in front of people, they are accepting of it. And they want more um, because you know what we have now is what you referred to earlier as sort of organized chaos. It's not working. Uh, so we do need to find new ways to do things. And what was your experience when you were there of media coverage? And presumably the media came in occasionally from outside to do pieces. To be honest, most of the the way it's done is patronizing 
this is either this quir- it's either an attack an out and out attack or it's this quirky little oh look at these funny little guys they're just doing their little eco village and it's all green and is that quirky patronizing kind of uh, vibe that you might have a, a bbc report might do you know that it you know and finally kind of piece you know or it's just this an out and out attack like the like the uh, evening standard which is a right wing newspaper was attacking the democracy village you know saying it was full of homeless people and it was disgusting and all of that you know i don't really know where they get off just basically saying that it's disgusting because there's homeless people there and you know all that kind of thing as if that's a reflection of how bad the place is and not of the wider society you know so you know there was that then there was the sort of i i guess the progressive media or inter- internet based media and that was fine but it was again very on the surface so you, they'd come for the day and then they'd leave and they'd get you know something but not really into the heart of 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 what it was all really about or or what was really happening so my so it was interesting it was also very strange to be a part of the community and be a part of the media which would ultimately end up representing it that was a strange little position to be in but i think that we're not going to make major changes through the mainstream media i don't think so but it's hard to um you need to try and create even if you are going to release this say i release this film on the internet trying to create a buzz around it enough of a buzz so that when it does come out on the internet and i'm sure that it will it has a lot of views you know people are sharing it and 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 it can and it, i know i know some to some extent it'll create its own buzz but you're right we do need to create outside of the mainstream um and we can't rely on it to you know explore to to express our ideas and as simon said in in my film gareth's quite excited because the bbc came to do a piece on us and he says, I'd ru- Simon says, I'd, I'd much rather have 5,000 local people come in than 5 million TV viewers because the connection that you make with 5,000 people that actually come in is far stronger than anything that you can generate across a TV screen. And so I'm painfully aware of that reality and yet simultaneously torn and frustrated but whilst trying to get my artwork seen by a wider audience. So um, that's where I'm at at the moment trying to use the media to get people to watch it but also understanding and coming back to your question is that actually the media is never going to represent this stuff properly and and we need to do it ourselves now another aspect of this which i suspect whether subconsciously or otherwise makes people somewhat nervous is the idea that they look at something like this eco village and other developments around the country and indeed around the world uh increasing numbers of homeless people uh, jobless people, people just basically struggling to to keep their heads above water, and they imagine that everyone in somewhere like this eco village they've basically been forced to go there through you know failed circumstances, and a lot of people are worried about their own ability. You know, maybe they don't make the mortgage payment every month. Maybe they're looking at getting laid off in a few months, and they think that could be me. But of course, it's not quite as simple as that because. There's a lot of voluntary downsizing and what's sometimes called smart sizing going on at the minute. And people are finding that actually there are things more important in life than things. So perhaps that's a concern for people. They just think this is a sign of society failing, but actually it can be a sign of society moving on. Well, yeah, I mean, the fact is the Cuba village and democracy village aren't ideal sustainable communities they're they are essentially experiments within the urban environment but as things start to get worse 
I think we need to be looking out at the land in the countryside and, and, and thinking about how we can have access to it so we can start to build alternatives, not going back to caveman times, you know, or, or because we've, you know, our mortgages are failing and because the economy is collapsing, we're having to go and live in these benders. It's amazing living in a bender. I lived through a bender for a year uh, with a burner and it was just a lovely experience. And actually, you know what? There are millions of buildings that already exist. No one's suggesting that they all get destroyed tomorrow. We just need to rethink how we do our economics and how we do, how we do do our societies and and we need to rethink them together in our communities and and we need to make choices based on our on what works for us in our communities you know it doesn't have to be that everybody has to go and live in an eco village what i'm suggesting and what the film is suggesting i i think ultimately is that perhaps people that want to should have the freedom to do it without being oppressed ultimately and and that is uh i think that's quite a reasonable a reasonable position you know and i say in the voiceover at the end um after the experiences i, I do feel like and i did at that time i'd become part of this minority group that wanted to live in a certain way based on their understanding of the negative aspects of our current societies but were completely unable to to live out their beliefs and their ideologies because of the way that our, our system is structured you know th through unequal land ownership and and complete dispossession of most people from the land and not just the dispossession of the physical land but almost like the kind of cultural dispossession between us and living and more simple life um and so i think it's uh yes people need to realize that it's not a negative thing it's not stepping backwards to caveman times it's trying to evolve or you know not necessarily evolve forward but just maybe even stepping to the side and just trying something different okay well another aspect to this is we've talked about how the sort of mainstream population getting their information from the mainstream media might perceive what's going on in a place like the eco-village. But there's also then the how the mainstream media and the establishment and the government kind of react to this as well. Because on one hand, they're telling us that we've got to get back to growth and we're going to, and the unemployment situation is going to improve and green shoots and the economy's on the mend and all the rest of it. Where on the other hand, there are a lot of uh, very clear signs out there that this is not the case, that they're telling us a story that is not real. And so... Changes such as the ones that you document, people wanting to do things differently, can be seen as kind of signs of this. So therefore, they've got to kind of downplay it and make it go away wherever possible. And we see this, for example, in recent criminalization of squatting uh, in the UK here. And that's part of a attempt to make a problem go away, to put a lid on something that can't be contained. You see also uh, in the US, for example, um, in certain cities have been People are forbidden to give food to homeless people, particularly in downtown areas. And again, this is part of a way of trying to, from the central business districts, try and make the signs of systemic societal uh, problems go away. I mean, I've even seen locks on bins around the back of supermarkets in the UK here to prevent what's called skipping, i.e. people getting perfectly good food out to feed themselves. So it's all trying to make the symptoms of these problems go away. Well, look, there's three elements to this. You know, all three of those things are documented in my film. Well, you have one of the main characters called Friend who cycles into central London 
every night and hands out uneaten sandwiches to the homeless. Uh, and, you know, since I made my documentary, that activity has actually been banned in central London, uh, which I do think plays into the, the idea that you just brought up, which is, you know, trying to not have to look at the problem. Uh, the second element is skipping, and many supermarkets do lock their bins. Uh, that's another thing which I, I document in my documentary. You know, you, you see the guys going out, and we feed up to 30 people a day, uh, almost entirely on food taken from supermarket bins. Uh, and only only one or two supermarkets, actually, in the in the local area. And then the other element to this is squatting. And, and I think that it, it's hard to know sometimes with the establishment what is a conscious effort what is the system kind of just running away with itself you know what is a like a almost like a plan or or a kind of idea or what, i think a lot of it's being driven by ideology actually but think but the banning of squatting i believe personally i'm not saying i'm 100% right i think it's mainly due to the fact that most squats that they're concerned about are hotbeds for radical organizing uh, resistance you know especially in the wake of the student riots you know as we see things getting worse we will see more radical resistance change you know both violent non-violent you know turmoil to try and which will react to it i think with the introduction of recent policies by this Con condemnatory government you know which has to be one of the worst in the history of the country uh, we are going to see a lot more and i think that the introduction of, of 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 the banning on squatting is about criminalizing radicals and i believe that the homeless people and the vulnerable people that are accessing buildings in order to house themselves are ultimately like collateral damage uh, who have been sort of caught in the crossfire between the state and what they see as the home of, of radical resistance. You know, that that's my kind of reading of it. But it doesn't mean that I, I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm very reticent to sort of reduce things down into like there's this small group in the, that are, you know, this small group in parliament that have got this big plan and this is what they're carrying out. I think there's always a, a room for a debate about how much of this stuff is systemic. And also it comes down to the market. You know, everything in our culture has to be part of the market. And anything that's outside of the market is a threat. So people occupying land, people occupying buildings ultimately allow themselves to exist outside of the market. And ultimately the market comes for them. Whether And, 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 the, and the tools which the market comes for you with is the state slash corporate big business police apparatus well it's interesting that you make that point about everything has to be in the market and has to have a price on it and has to justify its existence you know human beings being the only creatures that pay money to live on the earth but as i demonstrated in a show that i did some time ago about the system um, commonly known as anarcho-capitalism that actually the market system we have at the minute is not a free market system it is rigged to the nines in favor of certain people. It's sort of a government corporate, corporatism, they call it. Actually, you see a lot more freedom 
a genuine freedom in free-flowing, freewheeling societies that, that where there isn't a hierarchy and, and people would actually be freer to pursue their own interests, not at the expense of others. And of course, they leave out compassion in this system that seems to have no human component in it, the mainstream money system. Compassion doesn't really figure in. Uh, most people do have compassion for other people. The one criticism of a completely free-flowing anarchic society is that there'll be no one there to help other people when they they get into trouble. We see that huge problems in that area now. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, nothing undermines the well, the phony free marketology more than you know when we've bailed out insolvent banks with public money. You know, I think everybody can see that hypocrisy. We need a free market. We need total freedom for markets. We're not banks. We're not going to regulate them. You know, they, 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 you know, the, if 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 banks and companies are totally free, then the, everything will balance itself out. That's what the the ideology says. But then they become insolvent. Those banks were insolvent and they failed. And we bailed them out with public money, money which should be being used for the tiny amount of socialist elements of our societies, the small safety nets that we do have. And yet they're not. They're being used to bail out insolvent banks, which if you really stuck by your free market ideology and you really believe it, should be allowed to made allowed and made to fail. You know, and, and I think that that is one small example. Well, not small, but it's one example which really shows that ideology up for what it is, which is a load of bullshit, basically. We mentioned earlier the Democracy Village, uh, which is located at Parliament Square in London, and that's featured in the film as well. Perhaps you could just tell folks something about um, that group of people and what that was all about. Well, the core of the core group of that place was this was a a few quite a few of the people that were at Kew Bridge, which is why it's a part of the film. Uh, well, many of the core group that I was filming at Kew ended up going over and being a part of the Democracy Village, and there was actually a three week. Uh, overlap between the just the end of Kew Bridge and the beginning of the Democracy Village. Uh, there was other groups involved in setting it up as well, which should be acknowledged. But uh, they, you know, it was it was set up ultimately to try and convince what was then the fresh uh, Condem government. You know, we occupied Parliament Square the dawn of a new government and the dawn of this government convinced them to pull the troops immediately out of Afghanistan and they were connected to ecological concerns you know this issue of Afghanistan people look some people have sort of questioned at the time and questioned the film and said you know why is this drive to pull the troops out of Afghanistan and occupying Parliament Square a part of the same film or a part of the same movement or the same cause I think that when we do realise that everything is interconnected and that many of our foreign adventures are to do with geopolitically acquiring oil and resources, then it makes perfect sense that the ecological concerns or the sustainability concerns of the eco-village and the concerns of freedom and land rights are 100% connected and should be a part of the same struggle to pull the troops out of Afghanistan. Um, and I think that, again, that's another thing that I hope the, the film does and highlights is that the mainstream green movement, the mainstream peace movement need to really sort of pull the thumb out and have a look at a bit much more self-reflective about the things they're supporting. Because Stop the War didn't even so much as blog about us down at Democracy Village. We met with 
the heads of Stop the War, and they said we'd do a call out for you, we'd do an email. We were occupying Parliament Square to try and bring the troops home from Afghanistan and stop the war. Didn't so much as put a blog up about us. Didn't so much as tweet about us, right? And we didn't get the support that we needed. And you end up seeing that in the film. We get overrun with homeless people. Things go a bit wrong, basically, at Democracy Village at times. And I'm still proud that I was a part of it. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm proud that the film, I think, has the balls, ultimately, to show you that stuff. But with more support from the wider community, we probably could have made a difference. You know, you don't know, do you? You always have to try these things. So I think that occupying Parliament Square and that last sort of act of the film, ultimately, the final third of the film, is intrinsically linked to the first part and totally strengthens all of the ideas and things which you've seen previously to it. Even the issues of landlessness and people wanting to live freely you know, we do have homeless people and eccentric characters at Kew, but then when we get to Lon- into central London and we occupy Parliament Square, the audience really meets, you know, proper people that are really struggling, people with heroin addiction, people with hardcore alcohol problems, people that are living on the properly on the streets, you know, in London, tough people with, but human beings and people that are just as uh, I've been left on the edges of our our current society that as you said before we we don't really like to have to deal with and so I'm really glad that the Democracy Village and Cube Bridge are both part of the same film because I think that it's it was for me personally all part of the same journey basically Uh, but journey physically but also journey of discovery well I think there's an issue with regard to for example the Stop the War organization around and i'm not casting aspersions on their integrity at all here i've no information would make me want to do that but there is an issue with protest being neutered or it can you know at least be toned down a little the more mainstream a protest protest movement becomes the more it begins to play a game you know and we'll speak to we'll line somebody up with a suit and tie on to speak to somebody in the mainstream media who's also wearing a suit and tie and it's it there's a danger that it can be sort of de-radicalized no matter how radical something is well, I don't know. You'd have to ask the people that stop the war why they do the things they do. You know, why during the whole time of Sokpa, they only had one rally, as far as I'm aware, that actually wasn't authorised. You know, you'd have to ask them why they don't support things like Democracy Village, why they ask, they're they sending out mail-outs to people when we're at war, telling them to basically march from Trafalgar Square down to Hyde Park and then go home again. You know, that's their choices. It's not up to me to cast aspersions on anyone either. But I would say there are strange choices. And again, I come back to the same charge I make to anybody that is supposedly on the progressive left. Do you really believe in the things you're saying? Because ultimately, if you do, we need radical action. And if you're not proposing radical action, then I have to question... You know, how much do you really believe it, you know? Now, since the um, 2010 and the Democracy Village and also uh, in the wake of the Occupy camp, which was at St. Paul's Cathedral in London in 2012, uh, the government have responded to all this activity by banning tents. And this is in order to avoid the threat of permanent protest because, of course, these tent villages crop up because people need shelter and there isn't any 
in the immediate vicinity that they can use. And we saw the effect recently with the Olympic Games, for example, with there was like no protests around there. And this also comes on from changes that were made in the wake of 9-11 to surround Parliament with concrete bollards, supposedly to protect the buildings from truck bombs, uh, etc., etc. And it really does throw... The, in the light of what you've just said about people's attitudes, um, it, it throws a question over the, the future of protest. Not to say that it will, it'll always be declining and it will always be neutered, but there, it, it's going to take different forms, and it, it may we have to be more creative and open about about how we go about these things. I, I, I don't know where it's going to go. It's going to be a big challenge as the state militarizes more. It's going to be more and more difficult to occupy spaces like this, and ultimately i think we need public support we need more people down there we need a real uh, coming together of all of these groups under one banner of you know freedom and uh, you know wanting to create something new and i don't yeah i don't have the answers i know that what i document in my film and what i've been a part of is almost like these first steps into something else and that each time we've done it i've i've seen oppression but what I, 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 I kind of understand the oppression in a sense. Like I, I, I expect the oppression. I expect the state, big business, you know, conservatives to not like what we're doing and to, to oppress us. I, 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 that doesn't surprise me. What has surprised me has been the division on the progressive left, for want of a better word. I don't even like using those terms. But the fact that we haven't been backed up, the fact that squatting is a dirty word, you know, the fact that transition movement for all of the things they've done, which are great, talking about growing your own food and haven't embraced more radical uh, politics. And I think that, yeah, there's there's a lot of class issues in it as well. You know, it's become a bit of a middle class gardeners club, the green movement. You know, so I'm not surprised by the extremism of the state and of this current system, but I'm ex- I'm, I'm slightly surprised by how divided the opposition to it has become. And I think that's the big challenge now is for us all to realise that it's not about particular issues. We're under a crisis of civilization, and we need a holistic, community-led approach to reacting to it. And one that does embrace radical politics like squatting and occupying land and anarchists trying to do things differently and more anarchistic. And that's not saying that that's a, a manifesto, you know, that because I understand there's like old people that might want to just grow some food and do things differently that aren't going to be going out and occupying land because that's not the kind of thing they want to do or they might or people with different personalities who don't want to get into that radical politics but it should definitely be a part of the discourse and we shouldn't be ashamed of it you know we shouldn't be ashamed that democracy village gets overrun with homeless people our struggle is the struggle of homeless people we are all involved in a class war whether we like it or not, the, we have the ruling class, which is has been popularized recently as the one percent, and then we have the rest of us. And it's divisions between the working class and you know activists and homeless people and the progressive left and socialists and communists and whatever that is allowing that one percent to dominate. Yeah, I think that as well as sort of we do well to be suspicious of. Um where isms can take us in future if we look at where they've taken us in the past. I'm always very resistant to any group activity that comes under an ism and and other things as well. And I think that what your film does ultimately show is the power of diversity and of free people 
and also tapping into the collective intelligence and wisdom of the species can take us a long way if we can like trust ourselves with that and trust that we don't have to have all the answers now but that to, to be honest with ourselves recognize what isn't working uh, be brave enough to try something new be brave enough to fail on the way to that and to not hold too tightly to anything that isn't really serving us and to have the wisdom to recognize when it's not great i'm glad that's what you got from the film because that's kind of what i i was hoping for Good. Well, Dean, um, as we wind things up for today, um, perhaps you could tell folks about the about the film, the website, because obviously you're, you're using crowdfunding at the minute and you're hoping to have this out and available to people ASAP. And uh, sure. it's just anything else that you'd like to share, really? Yeah, well, you can find the film and the info at graspthenettlefilm.com. Uh, we can watch trailers, read articles. Uh, you can find my personal work at deaddeanfilms.co.uk and you can find my previous film at crisisofcivilization.com uh, I am aiming to release the film at some point in the summer and hopefully that will be available to watch online and to download and I'm currently playing the the game of trying to get it into a mainstream film festival so I can create a bit of a buzz about it and, and, and make journalists and people that write in magazines and, and things like that uh you know engage with some of the ideas that are in the film and that we've talked about so i guess if any of your listeners know want to get involved the best way they could do is to just go on the on the website and and send my trailer and the information about the film to people that might want to blog about it write about it do interviews like this and really help me from the ground up uh, build buzz about the film and, and also, it's a funny film. This is something that we didn't mention. It's a funny film. It's an ex- entertaining film. It's not all serious and, 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 you know, about all of these deep political issues which we're talking about. It's, it's entertaining. And you get all of this stuff along on the journey, I hope. Okay, well, thank you very much, Dean, for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. All the best. Well, that's it for another time. I very much hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please check out the website. That's legalizefreedom.com, legalize-freedom.com. There you'll find an archive of shows on many equally interesting topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat. You've been listening to legalizefreedom.com.